You're listening to These Are The Days. Hello and welcome back to These Are The Days, a podcast from me, Ronnie Costello. Episode number five was such a laugh to record. Uh, my thanks to Andy, Fraser and Gordon for sitting down and talking mostly about music, then ending up speaking about Meat Paste. It's a format that was really well received. Uh, we will look into doing it a bit more often. Originally, I was going to do it every fifth episode. Uh, I first thought that would that would work out quite nice. But a week exclusive of future plans, it will be back as episode number eight on the 11th of September. Thank you very much for being part of the podcast by listening, subscribing, sharing. Uh, we are at The Day's Podcast. If you're not following us already on social media, that is on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And you can subscribe on Apple, Google and Spotify. And you can stream or download on SoundCloud as well. Uh, give us a wee review and a rating as well if you can. It does help us grow a little bit, tell more people about us. And you can check out the website for full details. That is www.thedayspodcast.com. These are the days. All of my guests on the podcast have been very open, they've been very honest about what we've talked about, but this episode takes it up a notch. This is the hardest, most open, honest and personal story yet. Barry Kidd joins me to share his journey of grief, anger, depression and being on the brink. You'll hear how much the role of music played as a coping mechanism, how he found solitude in a pen and paper, how he had to lie to the people closest to him about where he was spending his time after work. You'll hear about the moment he was on the brink and what the turning point was. There's no editing this week apart from this intro. There's no fancy bits of audio dropped in to promote the podcast during the chat. This is two hours of our unedited conversation. This is episode six of These Are The Days. The strength is always there with Barry Kidd. Follow the podcast on social media. We're at The Days Podcast on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Barry Kidd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on to tell your story. Thanks for having me. Uh, your story itself is a little bit different from others, because your story has already been put down and written in the form of an essay. Correct. Which was back in 2016. So we'll cover the essay. We'll kind of run with it, go with the flow, and then find out a bit how life is currently in what is now the summer of 2019. So the, the essay, how did it come about first and foremost before we dive in? Yeah, so one of my close pals um, have been involved with the local music scene for many many years he's got his own wee web zine which he uh, invites guest writers on from time to time and um, he just had an open submission going so anybody that wanted to write a piece could write a piece and yeah things just sort of fell into place around about the, the, the right time for me to have the right triggers go off in my head that made me think, right, okay, I think I could potentially maybe spew all this out of me in, in a singular written form and maybe have a go at this. So I gave it a shot and, and submitted what I'd written and it ended up being quite a, a cheesy to say, it, quite a cathartic experience, you know, to, to, 
to lay everything down, things that I'd kept hidden for years and stuff like that. So before I get into the the start of the essay, mm-hmm. when you were write, writing it in the writing process, was it all in one go, or was it something that was maybe done in parts, or would, did you just sit one day and go, "This is it"? No, I just sat one day and that was it. Just kept going until it was finished. Yeah, yeah. Which mm-hmm. is uh, to have the focus to do. It's quite because I mean it's. It's a long read, mm-hmm. but it's a very interesting read at the same time. You know, it's not mm-hmm. just... And to be doing it in one sentence, pretty damn good. Yeah, no, it, it, that doesn't happen very often, to be fair. Um, but it has happened occasionally. Some, um, I mean, these are things that we'll talk about as we get get going, but I have written for years and I've written, uh, you know, poems and songs for bands and things like that over the years and... Sometimes the best things that I've ever put down, I've put down just in a total splurge in a winner mm. and just got the whole thing out in one go. How, why does that not happen every time? It's so annoying. And other times you spend weeks and sometimes years and you've got to trawl through scribbles and notebooks and piece bits together here and there to get something coherent. But no, sometimes it just comes out in a winner. And you've got to run with it when it does. So the it was written in 2016 mm-hmm. and um, the start of it's uh, quite interesting because... It basically starts, you went to see a band, mm-hmm. not for the first time, for about the fifth or sixth time, and, and, and something that night just starts you off. It just clicked, yeah. No, I was standing in the room, I was listening to the uh, the singer from the band. Um, it was in a venue called Audio in Glasgow. It's not a particularly huge uh, venue, maybe a couple hundred capacity. And like I say, I've seen this band numerous times and never had any inkling that, um, well, I've, the subject matter of the songs gives an inkling to the, you know, the troubles that the the, the main lyricist has had over the years and anxiety and depression and things like that. But yeah, no, he told a story that night about how the last time he was in that room, that very room audio in Glasgow, he had the, uh, the first on-stage panic attack that he'd had for a very long time. And... It was nothing to do with the environment. It was nothing to do with where he was and what was happening at the gig. Nothing um, particularly traumatising was happening. He was just, it just for some reason, things like that just overwhelmed him and, and, and it happened. And he, he just started chatting about how he he was now stood in that room again and felt completely at ease and felt completely welcome in the surroundings. And it's just it was a moment of reflection for him that it was bizarre to kind of come full circle and, and have that experience. Um, well, such contrasting experiences, but in the in the same room in the same city. So, and I just, yeah, no, I left the gig that night, and I was just thinking about, you know, what is it? What it's a punk band. It's punk music that I've predominantly always been drawn to since I was a, a youngster, and I just started thinking about what what is it that draws, you know, people. I'd never really considered what I've now admitted has been wrong with me for years. I'd never really considered it to be a mental health issue but of, co- of course it was when I sit down and actually think about it and speak about it openly of course it is it's, there's no no other way to describe it I think it was just a mixture of denial and uh, you know crazy pride that made me just blind to the fact that that's what it was but no thinking about his journey it just got me thinking about why I I was drawn to that type of music and, and what connected people like us and why is there always seems to be something wrong with us in a way that, that draws us to this particular, you know, subculture. Um, when would this gig have been then? Uh, it, r- roughly. 
I, I, I think it was it wasn't far away from when the essay was written, so mm. I think it was I think it was around about twenty sixteen. So say in twenty sixteen there's the the whole stigma of mental health is it, it's kinda gone. It's a work in progress. It always mm. will be, I think, mental health. Yeah. But you know, when it became for the wrong reasons a buzzword mm-hmm. that people used and people would use it as an excuse, mm-hmm. which it's not a nice thing to do when there is nothing wrong with you mm-hmm. and you are using it, whether it's to get off from your work or to, you know, get extra weeks at home or whatever it is, you know, for something like that, uh, the stigma's kind of gone. But again, is it maybe a, is it maybe that guy thing with a strong exterior that we, you know, we, we, we don't get this. There is a lot. Know, we get man flu and it, it is the world's worst illness you will ever have yeah, just, but something like this is it, it's a lot harder to um to kind of open up and for you you've done it in writing it down mm-hmm. which is a, a, a was that the acceptance then was that the release was that the yeah that's the only way that i could i think that's the only way that i could make sense of things for a long time because partly for some of the reasons that you mentioned i, I didn't feel comfortable speaking to people about it i I think a part of me didn't want to admit that I had an issue. A part of me didn't want to admit that I was struggling with it. And part of me didn't want to um, perhaps reflect on where it might lead me if I couldn't stay on top of it. Or put a label on it. Yeah, well, exactly. I think a lot of it was that as well. I didn't want to say, yes, this is this is what's wrong with me because I didn't like the idea of labelling things and I didn't like the idea that, I don't know, I think that's what I've struggled with since a young age was was feeling slightly outcasted and and not fully accepted in the environments that I'd been in mm. until this sort of exploded in my teenage years and all of a sudden I found somewhere where I felt accepted. It was bizarre. Which, for that to be three years ago mm-hmm. and given what the, the, the your story in the essay then kind of moves into about you saying, you know, you don't want to put a label on it. You don't want to seek help, which again, I think is the macho image that guys have always done. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. No, it's okay to be okay, but it's also okay to talk now. But again, back then and over those years, um, you didn't do it. You wouldn't have done it. And mm. the thing for you is, you know, and you're very open and honest in the essay, which obviously we are bringing into the verbal side of it just now, um, is that it, it, it kind of stems back to you being wracked with this grief for um, you were nine years old, Correct, which is, yeah. I'm not putting a label saying you're 30 years older now, but um, it's a long time mm-hmm. for you to, to kind of have that. Exactly, yeah. Which, and when you're nine years old, there's no coping mechanism no. For, for what's happened, you know? And how did that affect you at that age? I think it, I mean, it changed everything, undoubtedly. Changed my path forever. Um, so yeah, just to piece the, put the, put the pieces in place, I, I lost my mum when I was nine years old. Um, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and sadly succumbed to it. So that was just, yeah, I mean, how much more can you, things go wrong at nine years old, you know, you've probably got, I mean, along with your dad, your mum's, she's the most important person in the world and suddenly not, she's not there anymore. And, uh, and I think, 
I don't think I did cope. And I think that's what the problem was. I think I just, I got, I got on with things and knew I had to, and I knew there wasn't really any choice. And, and, you know, I just kicked, kicked my head down, went to school and did what I had to do. But I think I bottled it up for those first few years. That's the problem is because I was so young, I still, I don't really remember that much. I just remember getting to a point where I was so, ang- I had a lot of anger as a, as a teenager and I didn't know what to do with this anger. And it was, it was becoming a problem. I didn't want it to become a problem because I didn't want to cause trouble. I mean, for anybody, obviously my dad been through enough as it was. My sister, older sister, she'd been through the same thing I had been through and uh, it was obviously affecting her as well. So I didn't want to be this burden on the family. I wanted to try and get on top of things and, but yeah, I mean, I just didn't know how to. I mean, I'd, I don't know how things would happen these days, but I can't imagine a scenario would come about like that and there wouldn't be, you know, services crawling over themselves to offer support for the child and offer support for the family and things like that. I don't know if that... I can't remember if that happened or not, to be perfectly honest. Um, but certainly none of it made its way to me. So I just had to try and cope with things in my own way and I didn't really know how to do that, so... Yeah, I started scribbling things down and keeping journals and just as a way of trying to make sense of, you know, you have so many questions in, in your head, like all day, every day. It's like, why did this happen? Why did it happen to us? Why does it happen to me? How am I possibly going like, to carry on with this? Like, how can, like, because you do, you just, even now I think about every day. And, and, but back then it was just constant, just all the time. You're just seeking answers and there's nobody can give you those answers. There's nothing, nothing can be said that's going to help you. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, you're going through crippling grief for you and your, your family at such a young age. But then even, you know, you move into, you know, teenage years and as you're growing up and you're saying that the, the kind of the feeling will come back. Not that you ever forget, you'll never forget, but the feeling comes back every time someone else passes away, whether yeah. it's old age or, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and again, is it just those feelings come flooding back for that time and, mm-hmm. you know, and because, and probably now the, the coping mechanisms, the support is there, but back then, because it's not, you don't know, you know, you don't have that special place where maybe you can go into your mind and mm-hmm. think of the happy thoughts or think of the good times or whatever else. Uh, but as you're going through your kind of teenage years and that's happening, it's not really helping you, no. you know, and you're getting, it's getting, it's getting worse, mm. I, I imagine. No, I had a, I had a pretty bad run, I'll be honest. Like, mm. um, it took me about, from that point, it took me about 30 years to actually, no, sorry, did it? No, it took me about 20 years from that point to actually sit down with a counsellor and chat about this. Mm. That tore me apart from a whole life. And one of the first things that she did um, was to plot, you know, significant traumas in my life, essentially. So it started off with, with mum and then we plotted what happened next. So, I mean, I lost my 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 gran, my granddad after that, and who were the next two sort of, after my dad, they would be my other two primary caregivers at that time in my life. So they were both gone in my early teens and then, I just kept on going from there. You know, I lost the auntie that I was closest to. Um, I tragically lost a friend who I was close to in the music scene. And um, we've since tragically lost my wife's mum. Um, and then, yeah, it just, I mean, it just, it just kept on coming and kept on coming. And so she, she plotted all of these and 
and actually showed me, he said, you've, you've never actually had a period, a good period of time in your life where you've not been hit with something that is just going to bring everything back to square one, naturally. And I mean, how, however, how you, how are you supposed to get over that? You know, you're going to link, you're going to link everything back to that first and worst trauma that you've ever experienced. And I did, and that was the problem. I just I couldn't move away from it because I kept getting reminded of it all the time. Yeah, and it's that constant reminder that um, you start questioning yourself. You start, you know, mm-hmm. you look around for your family. You look around all that. I mean, I about ten years ago, eleven years ago, my uh, my mum and dad are, are aren't together. I've never known them together. Um, but they, they live very good lives separately, still got on, which is good, especially when you need a spark in your house, mm-hmm. you need your dad to come and do it. And uh, when your mum needs something done in her house, your dad goes and does it, mm-hmm. it works. And um, we lost his mum, uh, yeah, about 10, 11 years ago. And I remember, I mean, I'm 37 this month. Um, so I was in my mid to late 20s, not a kid anymore. And I've said this before on one of the episodes that I felt very shielded, very protected maybe is the word. And I don't think it should have been because I was in my mid-20s, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I'm, I remember seeing my, and she had cancer as well, which is the single worst fucking disease ever. Um, and I mind, remember seeing her one day, fine, six months later, what's happened you know and that was it and I, and I remember getting the call I remember uh, my mum actually phoned me and said um, just to make you aware uh, your dad's going to phone your grand's passed away but he's going to phone you and I think just priming me a little bit because mm-hmm. it, it's tough you know it's not it's the first time I'd ever um, really had that phone call and it was late at night and I still kind of remember it and you know going to funeral and everything it was it was, it, it was horrible it was just a horrible experience and the one laugh that we got out of it to, to make, to just make yourself smile. And I think, and I think you always need one of these things to happen. Um, the following week I was walking through the overgate with my dad and his phone rang and it said, mum. <laughs> and I went, I'm not so sure about this. And he answered. And, uh, and I think he was a little bit in shock. And to my, uh, grand husband, who I always call Frank, and I never called him granddad, and it, it wasn't a disever, he was, he was Frank Tass. And to his credit, he went, well, oh, sure, credit to you, so I may as well use it up. <laughs> and I roared about laughing with that. And it was one of these things that at the funeral you told, and, you know, just a, one of these memories. And any time I think about it and the sadness always comes, that just makes me laugh about it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And at the same, whereas... You never had that. You've had this constant shitty feeling that, that that's kind of repeated itself mm-hmm. and going to that. Um, you know, something that I never expected as well to happen as you get older is that it, it hits you at different stages of your life. And you think you're getting a grip of things, and then you you know you you get married, and she's not there, and then you know you're hitting big milestones, and she's not there, and then. Yeah, just all these sort of things happen throughout your life. Everything that you would expect, you know, folk to have their mums with them and she's not there, you know, it's just... Mm. And I know a lot of that is is me not moving on and, and, and dwelling on the past, but I mean, 
I defy anybody not to have those thoughts in a situation like that. It's mm. just, it just your your brain just naturally gravitates to thinking about that. And yeah, it hit me in ways that I didn't know it was was going to hit me basically. And that's when it got to the point where I I kind of had to go and speak to somebody. Mm. And the sort of six months prior to getting married, because it was it was getting bad, and I didn't want to go into to marriage in that place in my head you know I wanted to try and get on top of it and, mm. and it, well, it was a huge help being able to do that one thing that stands out in the writing of the essay is and I think you're you can correct me if I'm wrong but I certainly think in your kind of very early teens mid-teens there's one factor that kind of stands out is um, music then mm-hmm. kind of comes in yep. so was it was it just Hearing music in the house, or we out and about. How did how did kind of that thing? I'd always been around music. Mm. I'd always liked and I'd always enjoyed music. And what did, was playing the house? Uh, see, mom, that's the thing. Because you, I mean, I'll I'll happily tell you, my mum always had the Rod Stewart and the Drifters playing, <laughs> and I for a musical education for for someone who tells me. She's no massive into music, mm-hmm. but has constantly got music playing in her car, certainly now because. She's now got a car that's got CarPlay and can stream music, and that's a whole new world for yeah. her. But yeah, the Drifters and Rod Stewart were always on. Yeah, I don't. Me. I don't remember an awful lot about what was on in the house, but I, I remember on car journeys. I remember always listen, like we would listen to music in the car, and it would always be cassette tapes. And there was a lot of fifties and sixties rock and roll things like that. And then um, two songs. I, I I still don't know if these songs were mum's favourites or not but two songs that I always linked to being her f- some of her favourites were uh, Stand By Me Benny King and, and uh, Unchained Melody by The Righteous The Righteous Brothers, Brothers version because yeah, yeah. if you'd said Robson Jerome no, we were no, having this conversation was changed luckily it was <laughs> too early for that to, mm. to have uh, a to ruin the song exactly, yes, yeah. Yeah. so I'd, I, remem- I do remember music being on and I remember like we did the things that every kid did we used to sit and record the charts on the stereo and things like that and then yeah I liked music and and it was, it was never really, it was never really to the forefront of my life. And then, yeah, just completely by random, I got a, I got a cassette tape one day. So one of my, I think it was one of my friend's big brothers. Have a go at that, like no problem. Took it home, stick, stuck the cassette on, and it was just totally different from anything I'd heard on the radio or anything I'd heard around the house. It was just a, a collection of songs. It was, I think it was predominantly Nirvana, some Pearl Jam, and some Green Day songs. And it was just, it was just a mind blow moment, you know. My head just blew off my shoulder. I was like, well, "What is this?" Yeah, and then you're mid teens as well. Oh, so it was I the mean, perfect time for that. You're to happen. talking early nineties, just before Britpop, because yeah. Britpop hit me. Yeah, why well, that hit me? There's and- a classic explosion of of sort of the new wave of punk, which was 1994. You know, Dookie came out by Green Day, Smash came out by The Offspring, and things just went crazy. So it was pretty much around about then, 1994. Um, I'm pretty sure Nevermind came out that year as well. Well, Nevermind and Dookie will, will arguably be on most... Anytime there's a greatest list, yeah. they're very high up on it, and so, deservedly so, because yeah. it's outstanding albums. So, it's, yeah, like I say, I think my head just popped off my shoulders, like, what is this? What is this? And 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 then I kept listening, and I kept listening, and I kept listening, and a couple of things hit me straight away. The song Alive by Pearl Jam hit me straight away. I mean, to me, that was, uh, to me in my head, that was my mother trying to communicate with me, saying, 
you know, n- now that I know what the song's about, it sounds completely r- ridiculous. It's a song essentially about incest, <laughs> but the actual words in the in the chorus, you know, I'm still alive. You know, I heard that leaping out of the leaping out of the the stereo. I'm thinking, okay, this is doing things to me that I've not experienced before, and and yet I think that's what it was. It was the combination of the absolute assault on the ears of the you know the just the buzzkill that sorry um the buzzsaw guitars and the 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 thumping drums and then yeah the lyrical content was just completely different from anything that I'd heard before. They were talking about things that I'd thought about and they're talking about things that was I was completely relating with. And I think it was just that connection with I'd gone for six, seven years thinking I was the only person in the world who had ever experienced anything like this. This is the worst thing ever. And then all of a sudden, oh no, wait a minute. These guys feel exactly how I feel. And but they're they're managing to express it. And I was like, oh, this is exactly what I need, you know, this is this is crazy. And you, and that's just got it's these weird things that happen. Mm-hmm. You know, if if uh if you don't know this guy and his brother doesn't hand you the tape, someone else can hand you the tape totally yeah. different. And exactly. it's you know, I didn't even listen to Wet, Wet, Wet. You know, they're still at number one. We know this. You know, but we're in there and you say that two things are really, really hit you. The subject matter and the delivery. That's it. And especially on some of the albums, because you mentioned the new wave, um, they weren't crossover records, but they were very much Gateway moving to chart, mm-hmm. the commercial chart success, which has made them, mm-hmm. you know, especially Green Day, who have mm-hmm. seen the test of time mm-hmm. and still tour now massively mm-hmm. way down the line from there then did is that when you you went really into these bands you know you the hairs have stood up your heart's kind of racing with it and just everything about it does mm-hmm. that then set you on these are this is my music totally and that's the journey you yeah. kind of then set, set me on a complete path at that point well that was at the time which will feel alien to a lot of folk now but when you would actually buy a physical product you would go to Woolies in the ferry and you would buy a CD on your lunch break from school and you would run, I couldn't wait till you get home open the whole thing up and you would yeah I would sit with the inlay sleeve and I would pour through every lyric and every song and try and understand you know where the the, the, the writers where they were coming from when they wrote this because quite a lot of it is, is quite cryptic and you've got to like, what, are they, what are they meaning by this especially a lot of Pearl Jam stuff um, so yeah the, that that was one of my favourite things to do was just sit down with a, a new CD pour through everything in it but then I noticed at the back they would they would have a thanks list and they would thank you know blah 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 producer or whatever but then there would be a heap of bands I was like alright okay don't know them don't know them don't know them don't know them so that's what I would do I'd write down lists of all these bands I thought if, they, if these guys like them and I like these guys then these bands must be pretty good so I would work my, again it wasn't like Spotify you could just ping your phone open and type yeah. them in and have a wee blast of their top song not like that at all you had to do some groundwork and actually go and find the, the stuff so, and we're still kind of talking pre-internet as well yeah so you're physically have to go and find this yeah exactly you had to get lucky or uh, as I later oh, as I soon found out you could go to the gigs mm-hmm. and people would have things called a distro which was amazing which was like a guy on a merch desk with a, a big flight case full of CDs that he would have from record labels from where they're from and there would just be, you know, A to Z of all these bands and you're like, whoa and a lot of them were really helpful, you know I, I mean, I love this band, who's like that you know, and you've got to check, try these out, try these out try these out, alright, brilliant, buy them, go home not have a clue what they're like, total potluck and then yeah, I've discovered some of my 
most favourite bands that way. It's just you, you said as well. You said just a moment ago about you know you you, you started to realise you weren't the only one mm-hmm. that was affected like this. Was that then a kind of turning point or a milestone probably in life that made you kind of go, kind of the, like the light bulb moment in mm-hmm. a slightly different way that you are just like, oh, this mm-hmm. is this is quite interesting. Yeah. And you kind of then, in your teenage years, you get, you're get really obsessed that you go into say, but this is now you in a punk phase. Mm-hmm. So did you go from... Punk's not a phase, it's a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah well, I, <laughs> I apologise, I did write phase. Um, but then is that when, you know, you started going to the gigs, you know, the rec- the, the CD collection's getting bigger? Yeah. Um, and what was kind of that feeling like for you? Because, I mean, I mean, going to my first gig. Mm-hmm. My first gig was Bon Jovi okay. on the These Days tour at Ibrox. And then went, I went with my stepdad to that. And then I, well, the first gig I went with my mates was to see Cast at the Kert Hall. Mm-hmm. And just that experience... Mm-hmm. Especially when the band are on form and the lead singer, it's just, yeah. it's amazing. It is. And I, yeah, I definitely had a couple of of, of uh, moments where things just like, you know, infinite possibilities seem to pop in my head. And that, that was one of them, you know, getting access to all this new stuff. And I had this uh, total cheesy uh, thing in my head that I used to say to folk for years when folk would come in like my CD collection was absolutely insane like for a while it's trimmed down quite a bit now but it was absolutely ridiculous and folk would come in the house like my first two student loans that I got when I was in in college 18 years I spent the entire lot talking over a thousand pounds at a CD fair at the SECC in Glasgow (laughs) and it was just ridiculous I had to take a suitcase home on the bus so um Folk would come around and be like, ah, what have you got so much? How can you possibly listen to it all? And I, I used to have this, uh, my notion was that, you know, I've got I've got so many questions about so many topics. I'm slowly finding answers within these songs. I think somebody has written an answer for each of my questions and I am just trying to find them. That was how I would justify continuing to buy all this music. Um, but it's helping you through real mental aches, it gave pains. Me, gave me something completely else to focus on, mm. and it took away that I didn't focus so much on, you know, the the pain that that I, that I was in, and you know, the harm that I could potentially cause myself. And yeah, it took that it took that completely away for a good number of years, and gave me a totally new focus. And uh, but yeah, like you say, I mean, realizing that you could actually then go and see these bands. That just that was just a whole nother level. Before we just get into kind of going to gigs and stuff and that <laughs> that kind of thing, you I imagine you're going to agree with me when I say this because you've had such an extensive collection. Now, my vinyl collection is about three hundred odd deep, mm-hmm. and I tell everyone there is not a bad record in my collection. Mm-hmm. Just your opinion, correct? And that is from a man who owns a picture disc of Spice Girls because it's limited edition. And take that because it's limited edition and something else because it's signed. But music's such a personal thing. Yeah. You know, we could listen to something like Green Day and the two of us can take completely different messages out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I kind of loved. And when you go and see that live, it's a totally different experience. Yeah. I think a couple of things happened for me when I've seen... The first band I saw was Green Day in the Barrowlands. 
Which is not a bad first gig. No, it was not. I did leave the gig in a neck brace, but we'll not speak about that so much. Um, I want to quickly just backtrack and say I'll raise your Spicer's picture disc. I have uh, the 12-inch single of Africa by Toto on a picture disc vinyl, and it's a lathe cut in the shape of Africa. A classic. A classic song with a beautiful vinyl of it. It's quite spectacular. Pals of ours found it in a charity shop and bought it. Brilliant. If you, I mean... I won't read your song quality, okay? But Stardust, the music sounds better used, one of the best dance records that was ever made, and it, it was amazing. Well, just this year, they re-released that single for a 20-year anniversary. Okay. So I bought it 20 years ago. It probably cost about three quid, four quid. So I bought it. It cost me twelve ninety nine. all right? And uh, on one side is the original versions, about eight, nine minutes. On the other side, uh, the logo was a roulette wheel, and that is etched on the other side but I haven't even broke the seal on the record yet because mm. I think it might be worth a bit of money because it wasn't a load made. That is the, that is the, uh, <laughs> that's the bind you find yourself in yeah. when, such, when you're a record collector. That, yeah, and that, that, that's kind of, but I get, you know, I'm going, yeah, and I get that, listening, for me, listening to a record, I love, and I do it kind of most days, I'll put something on, even if I'm just potting about the house. Mm. But when you go to a gig, yes, the different experience you get mm. sometimes after a few shandies. Well, but was, you know, your first gig's Green Day, which is yeah. a mind blowing. I mean, I, I, out of the three bands that, that I was that I was sort of led into off of that cassette tape, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and Green Day. I hooked on a Green Day most to start with. Pearl Jam played a massive part in my, in my life when I when I sort of got a little bit later into my teens. But Green Day, as a snotty young. Teenage kid with a green mohawk and thinking he was like, do you know what I mean? It was the, uh, you couldn't get a better band to be 15 and, and angry to soundtrack. It was just, it was just, it was just perfect timing. Um, but yeah, when we ended up at the, at the gig and yeah, a couple of things happened. That, number one, I realised that there was loads more people like me, not just the band on the stage, thinking the songs that I'm relating to, but you know, a couple of thousand people in the Barrowlands and they're knocking shit out of each other and nobody cares and it's completely not frowned upon and seems to be totally normal and I watched it for a couple of minutes and thought I am getting tore right in about that <laughs> and then that was it. it just you know you just dive in and you just completely lose all sense of where you are for an hour and a half and you're, it's just the most incredible experience I mean, I, I'll never forget it. And, yeah, like you say, a couple of failed uh, crowd surfs landed me on my head towards the end of the gig and slightly concussed and had to go and visit the wee... There was a wee first aid kind of a wee bit fenced off at the side of the barrelands next to the toilets and I had to go and visit them and, ah, oh, well, we better put you in a brace, son. So I left in a brace and was getting rounds of applause from everybody who thought it was great. <laughs> well, it's kind of like your own headline of the barrelands, that. It's all right, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, as a, a kind of young teen, you you mentioned you kept diaries and journals. Mm-hmm. Um, was that to try and explain to yourself at the time what you were going through? Is it kind of what just as maybe an outlet? Yeah, for you, I've kept quite a few of them. No. Well, your next line you yes. say is uh, you are a, you've had a wee flick through them and uh, dear, oh dear. I am yeah. Cringing, honestly, it's so bad. Yeah, was it, what? What was it? Without going, to, was it just thoughts? Was it um... a lot of it? Was just a sort of an account of the day. So I was like, did this, saw this, 
you know, bought this, listen to this record, it was class, mm. next day. And a lot of it was like that. Every now and then, there was a little sort of glimmer into, you know, a bit more of a deeper thought or a deeper musing coming through. And, and yeah, I didn't realise any of that until I looked back on them uh, years and years later. I found them during the house move and thought, Jesus, let's see if like through this, this will be good. And uh, aye, it was, uh, like I say, I mean, what do teenage boys write about? It's uh, it's not it's not pretty for the most part. But yeah, there was a wee, wee glimmer here and there of, of why I was trying to make sense of all this. And, and then that sort of, evolved into into notebooks full of you know prose and, and and poetry and trying to rhyme things together i think in my head i thought like well ah, i could write songs and all the rest of it so I, I was trying my hardest to do that and it wasn't really working but i mean most of it was thrown away but there was the the odd glimpse here and there of, of what i was trying to get out it was also kind of because at the time there's 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 no one to talk to about what you're going through well that's it yeah I had this whole bunch of friends now who were on the, or I thought were on the same page with me, but I mean, they had, they had comfortable, balanced home lives and nobody had experienced what I'd experienced. Yeah. And I, I didn't, I can't, I didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be the kid that lost his mum to everyone. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to, oh God, we don't want him to come along. That's all he's going to talk about and all the rest of it. And he, He's just like moody and sad all the time. I didn't want to be that kid. So I kept a lot of that to myself and tried to make sense of it myself by just writing it down until it kind of made sense and I was starting to get wee answers and things like that. Would you say you started to figure it out yourself or started to to be a bit more open with maybe what else was out there at the time? Or I think I did start to figure things out. Um and yeah I mean like I say a lot of that coincided with um, the more and more bands I was listening to and the more and more gigs I was going to and like I say the circle of friends was growing and I was starting to I was starting to interact with, with people now who were actually in bands locally and then that's so that's when I realised there was a whole other level to this that I didn't know about yet. Um, and then yeah, it kind of got me thinking. Well, these other bands they must obviously have songs that they play. So what do they write about? You know, what do they think about? You know, maybe these are some people that I could potentially like. You know, bounce this these feelings off and talk to. And um, I kind of it snowballed from there and gave me the idea that you know. You know, maybe one, maybe I could be in a band, and that would be a whole nother level of 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 an outlet. Because I, I mean, the the music was great, bouncing around the walls in my bedroom was great, and I used to ride my bike and put my headphones in and listen to uh, to my Walkman at that time. I used to just blast that as loud as I could, and I would thrash my bike up and down the ferry and just just get out the energy that I had. And but then, you know, that, that evolved and, and, and it came to going to gigs to get rid of the energy and, and bouncing off people instead of the walls in my bedroom. <laughs> and uh, I just loved it. I just, but I just still wasn't quite feeling... I still felt as though that I needed more. I wasn't quite getting everything that I needed out of me. And the thing with, you know, you're writing into your journal and you're, kind of, you're keeping all these things to yourself and you're writing it down is because... And certainly... 
back then is that and even, well, even now as well, because people can just go about day-to-day life because underneath, but it's in their head, it's underneath it, you're really mm-hmm. struggling. Mm-hmm. But people go through it. Now, I'll give a slight exclusive to, to this. Uh, I've written in a journal every, not every day, right? Because that's a total lie. For the past four years, because when the relationship I was in fell apart, I was looking for answers. And I knew the answer is because our time was up. But for some reason, about two months after we'd split up, I was convincing myself that wasn't the answer. It was the answer, but I was convinced at the time, nah, it can't be. Because so, I'd went from being, from living and owning a three-bedroom house, both had a car each, Decent job. I mean, she, she had a better job than I did, but I, I, I enjoyed what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just kind of fell apart. And it fell about the year before. And we tried to have this wee break and then we'll go back together and blah, blah, blah. And it didn't work. And it was fine. And we got on great now, which is... Um, and she listened to episode 3's podcast about the dick pics and stuff. So that was interesting. But anyway, so I've written in a journal, obviously not just one, um... And kind of some days it's just something, or even I think it started out just as notes as well. Uh, and I'll put them on my phone and I'll put them down and I'll write them. And I went back, when I read your essay, I went back and read one from then. And I was a real angry individual. But I wasn't, I, I, my anger wasn't, it wasn't anyone in particular. It was just anger mm. coming out. You know, um, but I, f- I find it really good. You know, I, I still write in now. You know, I don't do it as often because there's a lot of other stuff going on. And I, I don't know. I, do, I don't do it often. But I have, I've written it every day since the 1st of July this year. And sometimes it'll just be, like you said, five or six lines. Mm-hmm. Nothing major. But I get so much out of doing that. And I quite like doing it. You know, I might not write in it this whole week. You know, you, you, it might just go, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. But since then, I have every single day. Um, but before that, I didn't do it for a couple of months, and I felt a wee bit lost. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. Um, and that was for me. It's been a massive thing. But just writing down, writing some stuff down. It could just be ideas. It could be all right. There's there's a page with podcast ideas on it that was about three o'clock in the morning one morning. I just started writing that, and it's just a, so it's a real. When you read back your old one. Mm-hmm. Yes, the words and everything don't make, but the subject matters are probably all over the place. And I think that's a really, really kind of good thing, mm-hmm. you know. So you start writing down your bits and bobs, you're writing some lyrics and stuff. Tell me about Tear Jerk. Tear Jerk. <laughs> yep, that was a phase in my life. Um, well, you said this, so I'm not doing you a disservice. Terrible name. Terrible, that was my fault. Terrible first show. Also my fault. Terrible first recordings. They were good. It was my fault. It was bad. And some terrible songs. Yep. So, yeah. Tell us the story. Yeah. So, like I say, I I got to that stage in my life where I was like, okay, I know some people who can who are in bands now. How does this work? So I kept trying to weasel my way in, weasel my way in. But I had a major problem in as much as I couldn't play a single note on any instrument known to man, let alone you know, carry a tune on it. So I don't know what I was going to do. Um, and we were on a bus back. I remember it very clearly. I was on a bus back from an event called the Extreme Festival. 
in Glasgow. How extreme? It wasn't that extreme. <laughs> there was a few good bands though. Um, that was when they they tried to they, they tried to package things like the Vans Warped tour in the states and bring them over here. So there's like a skate ramp and a BMX oh, ramp okay, and okay. stuff like that. And uh, yeah, no, just give us the bands and take the rest of that crap away. Yeah. <laughs> so I was on the bus back from that and uh, started blathering to some people and I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to start a band. Yeah, it's like, oh, fuck, I want to be in the band, but I can't. Like, how can I be in a band? And I was like, well, perhaps I could sing. I don't know. That's the only option I've got. Like, I don't even know if I can sing. So the the the, the topic came up and it was like, yeah, none of us want to sing. We're starting a band. None of us want to sing. You you can be the singer. I was like, I have no idea if I even can sing. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's punk rock. Nobody cares. Just jump around and shout a bit and throw things. It'll be fine. Oh, God. Right, okay. So booked a few practices and had a shot and see how it goes. And yeah, it was at that point where I had to, yeah, open up. I found it, I still find it horrible to do this now. I hate it when it gets to the stage where you've written a song and I'll never sing in the practice until I know it's right. And I've got everything fitted where I want it. So they're just constantly playing this thing, the, the music, and I'm like, ah, no, do that bit a wee bit longer. And I'm scribbling, scribbling, scribbling. Do that bit a wee bit longer. Right, okay. And then I'll go through it again. Right, I've got it already. Right, read the lyrics. No, I can't do that. Sorry. <laughs> can't do that. I'll sing them and you won't hear them, but I'm not reading them. Oh, come on. No, no, no. So we just had to piece this, 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 these songs together. But we started doing it and started getting a little bit of confidence and. Yeah, one thing led to another and we booked our first gig and uh, it was in the, it was either a sc- scout or a beaver hall or something in Carnoustie. And, uh, I hear all the best bands start there. Uh, what know. can you do? But for some inexplicable reason, and I still don't know why this or how this could possibly happen, it was our first gig ever and there was bands on who I'd seen before and who I knew were pretty good or could at least play their instruments and... Uh, get through songs and make it look like they knew what they were doing for some it must have been it, was, it must have been something like oh we've got to catch our, our bus back so we can't stay till the end we ended up having to play it last like headlining this thing in effect and it was just horrendous it's just you know everything that you thought you'd learned you totally forgot and I missed loads of timings and it was just your stereotypical first gig it was just a shambles mm. but we did it and we got over it and then we just kept playing and kept playing and slowly we got a little bit better and a little bit more confident and things progressed and, and we started getting okay. How old would you have been then? Uh, we'd have been about 20, 21. Okay. So so you would be working or studying during the day and then weekends you were spent with a band? and Yeah, pretty much. I can't even remember what I was doing at that point. It's all a bit of a blur, to be honest. Um, I would have been working. I would have had some... I would have had some jobs somewhere did some part-time jobs a couple of shops and that in Dundee but nothing serious wasn't like I wasn't in a career or anything like that and you started as a punk band was mm-hmm. that kind of the aim mm-hmm. is that how oh yeah I just wanted to play as fast as we could and just be as loud as we could that's all I wanted to do so we started off as a punk band and yeah it was just it was pretty throwaway stuff because I didn't want to I didn't want to really completely open up at that point I didn't think that I could mm-hmm. So I kind of took cues here and there from what other bands would maybe sing about, and yeah, we had a couple of couple of songs about growing up in a boring town and you know lost loves and just stuff like that, you know, just pretty throwaway material. Yeah. Um, but th- things kind of progressed and influences changed, and a couple of guys in the band liked quite 
the harder edge of punk um, and started giving me oh listen to this CD listen to this CD so I got shot of a, of a couple of different things that I hadn't heard heard before mm-hmm. um, I thought and then that it was another kind of moment where things just kind of blew my head blew my mind a little bit I was like wow this is mental this is the kind of stuff that I want to do mm-hmm. and we slowly kind of morphed into much more of a sort of much more of a hardcore band much more of a um, less singing a bit more controlled kind of shouting and stuff like that and uh, which I couldn't do to start with at all but when I actually I used to get tonsillitis about three or four times a year because I just shredded my throat day in day out um, we used to maybe practice three, two or three times a week and, and my throat was just in pieces and plus you're I didn't know anything about microphone hygiene at that stage in my life. So you're playing gigs and you're just grabbing a mic and sticking it right in your mouth, basically. And God knows what I was picking up from where. So I I used to get tonsillitis maybe like three or four times a year. and But my throat eventually sort of toughened up. I read somewhere, if you keep doing it, it'll toughen up, it'll toughen up. And uh, so I kept doing it, I kept doing it. And then I found that I was able to, I was able to control that type of singing a lot more than the stuff I was trying to do I was trying to hold notes and do harmonies and stuff like that I couldn't do that at that point I didn't know enough so um, I was able to do the the more hardcore side of things a, a lot easier to me I felt more comfortable doing it so and that was just sort of naturally gravitated towards that sort of a sound and when you when you're writing and, and mm-hmm. one thing you you mentioned in the essay is you're you're always writing you're writing you're writing you're writing mm-hmm. but there was very much a a difference between what you were writing for song and still what you were writing for yourself. So for yourself, you're still doing, you know, real personal stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, despair, grief, life, all that kind of stuff. How hard was it to separate or was it, I'm not going to sing about this Mm -hmm. because that's, that's kind of for me. I didn't, I don't think, when I think back on it now, I I didn't feel like it would fit Mm. with that band. So I didn't want. I, I let a couple little. There's, there's a few. There's a few songs in the later EPs that we brought out, um, which touched a, a little bit on on personal anguish and stuff like that. But for the most part, I was kind of because I, I was listening to a lot more political punk bands at that point. Um, a band called Strike Anywhere completely blew my mind and still do to this day. Um, Propaganda, uh, and I started getting a lot more interested in that side of things. Because I, I'd always been really, really nervous playing live, um, and I just I didn't know what to do with myself because I was like they all had guitars or, or a drum kit they could hide behind. I was boom right in front, right in the front, front and center with a microphone. And I've, whether you like it or not, like when you're watching a band, you know ninety percent of your time you're probably watching the vocalist, yeah. and I, I just felt that all the time, um, and, I, and and it took me a lot. of it took me a lot to to get up on the stage some nights. I was it wasn't uncommon for me to just completely disappear. Um, before like while they were all setting up, I couldn't be in the room. I just was totally freaking out, and I used to get blind drunk sometimes. I used to just hide in in places. I don't know if you remember the old Westport bar, uh, the old one where the casino technically is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And upstairs and that, and there was there was rafters above the stage, a head above the rafters. At one point, while well, they were all setting up beneath me. I was like, what the fuck is he? And I just kind of sort of dropped down from the raft. I was like, some sort of Batman <laughs> image. I was like, here I am. 
And uh, so it's just stuff like that. But then, and like I say, I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know what to do with my body. But and so I just, I don't know if I was trying to disguise, disguise the fact that I wasn't confident in, in the fact that I could sing or that I was just nervous about being up there. But I, yeah, I just used to jump around like an idiot. I used to jump off, off the drum kit and jump off the speaker's back, climb on the speaker stacks and jump off the stage. And if there was a balcony in the venue we played and I would find it and climb on it and jump off and somebody introduced me to radio mics at one point in that in that period of my life which was the greatest thing because I could run anywhere I wanted it was brilliant um, so there was a lot of that uh, going through so uh, there were angry performances when we were playing and, and it felt like I had to sing angry songs so that's what I wrote and I didn't want I didn't want to get into the more personal and more emotional side of, of my anger I wanted to focus on the I'm publicly angry about this, so this is what I'm going to sing about. Because one thing you say is you're obviously you're developing as a writer, mm. whether it's you know just out of how you can put together a couple of lines really easily, or you can finish songs from start to finish, or yeah. or whatever. Because I mean, I think most people that write songs tell you that seventy five, eighty percent of them are written very much in stages or over time or mm. whatever. It's very rare you do a one take yep. kind of wonder that comes out. People do. But you were also then, you were understanding more about why you were so hurt and so lost at the mm. time as well, mm. which again goes back to the flip of um, on the outside, you were, people probably thought, he's all right, he's fine. Mm. Mm. But inside, you've got that going on, you've got all this nervous en- nervousness when you're going on stage, and clearly on stage you find this energy to deal with it all was the performance, whether it was nerfed, the kind of release you needed at the time? Mm, yes, I or think so. Or purely because you were so nervous at the same time, it was... I would fair to say there's probably a mixture of both. Yeah. yeah. I'd, get, I'd get myself worked up to such a, a state that by the time that we played, it was just a complete ball of energy, whether it was nervous or anger or just impatience, because I just... You know, a lot of bands hated playing first. Oh, we don't want to play first. Nobody ever, nobody's ever there till the second band starts. Like, I was totally delighted to play first. It didn't bother me whatsoever. Get it out of the way, get it done, yeah. over, and get it dusted. So things like that didn't bother me. And uh, yeah, the um, I don't know. I just started to feel. You know, people would talk to me afterwards and they'd say, "Ah, oh, you know, that was great," and all the rest of it. And I was like, "Was it?" I was it okay, fair enough? And then I would chat about things and all the rest of it. And there was no way anybody could decipher what I was saying, really, on the stage. When we brought CDs out, we would put I'd put the liner notes in with the lyrics. Mm. And that was that was a big step for me to do that. So like, I'm giving this away. But I was okay with it because I knew it wasn't, you know, it was only little bits of mm. what was really going on. But there was a couple of there was a couple of songs here and there. Um but yeah, for the most part I started to feel like, like people were accepting me and I was getting away with the behaviour that I was exhibiting on stage during the live performances. So I just kept doing it. Yeah, because it, it's a real, you know, it's you've got that much kind of going on and you've clearly got two writing mm-hmm. focuses, you know, and you, you allude to a part in the, uh, the kind of essay when you've still got those questions, you... It's you don't open up to your family, but you go 
to your mum's grave yeah. and answer your kind of own questions yeah. as, as well. And then you then go home and basically have to deny where you've been. I mean, it, just because, again, you're still going through, because there's so much kind of going on. Mm-hmm. But was it maybe just the, the peace, the quietness of it? Or, you know, think- obviously it's a nice thing to do, but just that... It was a different environment. You weren't looking at four walls. You could just... Yeah, I think... I mean, I think it just stems back to the fact... I mean, I was in my in my 20s at that point and I just missed my mum. Do you know what I mean? I just missed her. Hmm. And something about the fact that I knew, as horrible as it was, and, it, and it's something that I would think about all the time, especially when it was there, you know, the fact that she is there, <laughs> in the ground, in the box, in front of me, but it's, yeah, first I used to just go and sit down and chat to her, and yeah, like like I've like I've alluded to in, in in the essay, I would sometimes get the bus home from work and get off at the cemetery rather than get off at home. I would go in the cemetery and sit down for a couple of hours, and then yeah, go home and say, "Alas, I worked late, stayed home, I stayed late at work instead." That's why I'm a couple of hours late. I don't, I don't know why I felt like I had to lie at the point at that point in time, but. I don't know. I just maybe you just I just knew it wasn't it wasn't really normal behaviour. But, but what is normal at the end of the day? I mean, you have to cope with things like that. That, however, whatever helps you basically. And that felt like at that time it was helping me. I just I just liked to sit there and I would chat away. And then yeah, in in chatting away to mum, I would be bouncing off the, the thoughts that were in my head in conversation rather than writing them down at that point. And then, yeah, you would come back and say, oh, that's maybe why I did that. And that's maybe why I'm feeling like this. And I think I think a trigger went off in my head when I finally did go to, to cruise bereavement care for some counselling in my late 20s and who were absolutely outstanding, by the way. I hope you don't mind endorsements. Not at all. Um, really a phenomenal uh, organisation. So... That I think, I think that whole thing that's key to so much of this is to just have somebody or something that you can vent to. It doesn't matter if it's a notepad, if it's a brick wall, if it's a gravestone, if it's somebody else, a counselor, or whatever. I think everybody going through situations like this and trauma like this that's built up over time, you have to be able to let it go to a certain extent, and even sitting with the counselor. She would hardly have to say anything. She would just maybe give me a couple of prompts, set me on my way, get me chatting, and I would just let it all go. And then before I'd know it, I'd answer my own question. And I think you need that. I think that's key to so much of this. It's just to have an outlet. And I think so many people either don't think that they'll find the right outlet or don't think that they can apply themselves enough to an outlet for it to be any good for them. You have to try. If it's eating you up that much, you have to give it a shot. And I think that's what kept drawing me back to there when maybe days where I didn't have the energy to to write, but I still had to get things off my chest. I would go and sit with mum for a wee while and I would just blather away. And yeah, there's a few nights sat in there that will forever stick in my memory. uh... (laughs) Most folk have got different memories of spending time with their mother but I mean that's the only way that I could do it so mm. there's uh, it shouldn't be a failing on my part or people in my positions part you know you, you, you're you still spending time with them and you're doing 
whatever makes you feel better, whatever gets you through to the end of that day and gets your head on your pillow and gets you home safe, do it. And you're you're not the only person that's sitting at no. the graveside no. talking. No. You're not. You know, you're you're not gonna be the only you might be the only one there at that time. Yeah. You're not gonna be the only one. And I realise that now. A couple of years later, I think it is, at this point, Tearjerk, Tearjerk finished. Yep. And um, you start a real personal project um, called 15 Minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the band ended. I'd, I never thought the band would end. And it, it was, I was pretty heartbroken when folk decided, right, this is going, this is run its course. Um I, for some reason, I had it in my head that, you know, we, uh, we were on the cusp of something. We'd had a couple of good reviews in, you know, nationwide punk press. It, you know, been pretty well receptive of the last stuff that we'd done. And and uh, we thought, OK, we could we could maybe do something here. And we had a couple of tours that weren't a total disaster. And, yeah, I just loved it. I just loved the fact that I had something to hold on to. And then, yeah, all of a sudden it was over. So that... I, re- I I was reeling for a while from that. It's like what that because not only was it was not only was that what I did with my life at that point, but it was also that's what I did to cope with what's going on in my head. And all of a sudden, I didn't have that anymore. I didn't have my outlet. I still had records and I still had going to concerts, but I didn't have you know standing up on my kind of soapbox almost and where it's socially acceptable to beat my chest with my fist and pretend that it's uh, it's all uh, part of the emotion in the song you know when really it's that's it was what was just killing me inside and I had to get it out of me and then to not all of a sudden not have that I didn't know what I was going to do but yeah my, my good friend Mike and I uh, Mike played guitar and Tearjack and we uh, decided that we should just continue writing stuff so yeah, we we had a couple of nights together at his flat with him playing an acoustic guitar and me just sort of, you know, thrashing through some notebooks, seeing if we could get a couple of songs out. And we got a couple of songs out. The first couple of songs that sounded pretty decent. So we kept going. And then the, the idea was to start another band, but um, we quickly realised that it was working just with me and him. It was a, quite an odd setup um, to anybody that had ever watched us Mike playing his acoustic and me separate just doing the vocals he would do backups and all the rest of it so it was quite an odd uh, dynamic f- to, to watch but it was different enough that you know folk watched us and some folks seemed to like us and we enjoyed it and uh, and I think we decided at that point that that was all that was that was all that mattered mm-hmm. your and, songs were changing though and my songs were changing quite yeah quite a bit I th- decided at that point I don't know whether it was the the stripped back element because it was acoustic and maybe it was me finally thinking well if I'm going to if I'm going to drip these songs out then now would be the time because folk could potentially actually be able to hear what I'm on about because it's only one guitar and me Um, so if there's any way to sort of bear bear your soul then now might be the time to do it so yeah it started uh, started letting some material out that I'd held on it for quite a long time you know and things Evolved from there, yeah. Uh, after that, uh, La Chance come next. Mm-hmm. You're back into the big band. Yep. How does this come about? Um, La Chance came about because I... 
15 minutes never actually split up we just we just didn't play very much uh, life got in the way and uh, all the rest of it so we technically still haven't split up we've done the odd we've done we have played in the last five years I think that counts as still being active does definitely <laughs> so but yeah I mean we didn't happen uh, um, life happened like I said so but no I, a guy that I knew from when, when I played in bands with uh, with Teardrop before Bumped it. I kept bumping into him at gigs in Dundee because I still went to I still went to gigs all the time. Whatever there was something on that my friends were promoting, we would I would always go. I still I, I was still actively involved in promoting the stuff up until just a few years ago. So um, yeah, I just kept bumping into him. I was like, oh, why do you come to so many gigs in Dundee? Because I thought he lived in Aberdeen. And he's like, oh, I've moved down here. I'm like, oh have you? I'm like, okay. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm looking I'm looking to start a band and blah blah blah. Like, all right, what sort of stuff? And we chatted about. Influences and it's like, oh, that sounds pretty good. It's like, oh, let's just have a jam. So went to his, had a jam. Very much the same thing. It's just uh, as any other band have been in, you know, things just clicked straight away. And we, we ended up writing a couple of really good songs straight away. And I thought, all right, okay, this is worth pursuing. So, yeah. And at that point, I'd been, I'd been in and around the scene in Dundee, certainly the punk scene for almost, you know, well over 10 years. So I knew a lot of people, I knew a lot of other guitarists, bassists and drummers and things like that. So I cobbled together a few who I thought would suit the style that we were wanting to play. And we had a couple of full band jams and everybody was on board and yeah, we wrote a set and that was it. I started playing a few gigs. And Tell us about the name. <laughs> yeah, the name. So uh, hark- again, just harking back to things that I'm a very nostalgic person and I, and I, don't, I don't know how much of that is because, you know, the first nine years of my life were the only nine years that I had with my mum. Or, or, I don't know how much of it is to do with that or, or what, but I, 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 a lot of me lives in the past and I've got a total soft spot for a lot of 80s nostalgia, especially movies. And as I touched on the song Stand By Me before, it's in my head, it's one of mum's favourites. So the movie Stand By Me has always been one of my favourites and... Yeah, Gordy Chance is, is the, the writer and the and sort of narrator, main character in Stand By Me, so the name Lachance came from from there, basically. Controversially, you've never actually split up the band, no. despite not being active. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, like I say, the, uh, it's one of these things where um, it's a... It's a constant source of comfort to me to know that that outlet is there, and it's like it's like mates that you see every now like you only see a mate maybe once every every year or so, but you don't need to see them every day or text them every day to still be mates with them. So it's kind of like, as long as I know that it's still there, then 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 that's good enough for me at the moment. Life can get crazy sometimes, and multiple elements in every band, and multiple lives going on at the same time, so. It's hard to to keep things ticking over. Have you ever learned to play an instrument? No, no. Ever ever thought about it? Had a lesson? Oh yeah. I, I just st- right at the start, I, I I wanted to learn guitar, but in the band that I was well in Teardrop to start with, I mean the two guitarists in that band were insanely good. So there was absolutely no point. I was like, that's why I thought there's no point in me learning because I'm never going to be better than them. So I can't. I'm not going to contribute anything better than they can. So there's no point in learning. And then same, like one of those guitarists then played with me again, and he's brilliant. So I was like, "What's the point of me learning? I can't be better than him." So never mind. 
And I just, I just, I just always, I just, I've just always been the talentless frontman in a band. I just, that's always been my job. The focus. Ah, yes, whatever you want to say. <laughs> I, I have a guitar somewhere waiting for me. I put a, I put a public request out for one because I, I want to actively now get into it. I'd, I'd love to, I'd, I've always wanted to be able to play. I'd love mm. to be able to not rely on other people to be able to play music. Do you know what I mean? So at the moment, if I want to play a gig, I need to know a guitarist <laughs> who can play the songs that I sing along to. So I would love to not have to have to do that. I'd like to be able to play some stuff if I could, but um, I've just never sat down long enough to be able to do it. But I, I, a mate of mine has a guitar waiting for me that he says I can have. I just haven't picked it up yet. They're good ornaments. I had uh, one as an ornament for a I've long time. I've had one. <laughs> Gemma, my long-suffering wife, has bought me a guitar, which has since now uh, been thrown in the skip because it never got it never got played. It's just, she tried her best. Yeah. You mentioned long-suffering mm-hmm. wife, <laughs> but uh, I imagine a phenomenal support to... Unbelievable. ...the music projects mm-hmm. and life in general. Yep. And like you say about the things, you know, you never know what path you're going to take. Somebody could have given me a different tape in 1994. Well, I, I met Gemma at a tearjerk gig. She came to the gig and... This wasn't a Yoko Ono thing, was it? Didn't split up because <laughs> Gemma No, us. not at all. Just checking. She, she just wanted a CD. So <laughs> I gave her a CD and chatted to her and then that was the first time I met her. And then that was it. She kept coming and we kept chatting and fast forward, here we are. So, yeah, it's mental how things happen and how things fall in place. One one thing you mentioned before we, we kind of continue with the story, you, you, you've made one statement in it. Punk rock for many is a phase of rebellion. Hmm. Explain that to me. I think it's easy to fall into that category. I think it's easy to be a punk during those stages in your life. Where, I mean, most teenagers will go through a point in their life where they've got some misplaced anger at something that they need to to get away. So, I mean, it doesn't, certainly now these days, it's not hard to find a, a, it's not hard to find um, music online. And I think it's easy to fall into that, into that, into that trap and, and let it be a phase. But, no, it was never a phase for me. It just I instantly knew straight away that this is something I was going to be involved in for the rest of my life, probably. And so far, it has been. <laughs> so as you get towards the end of the essay, <clears throat> everything we've discussed in there, there's a wee bit more some of the band stuff that we haven't touched on. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of it, I think, you correct me if I'm wrong, but whether when you've been writing it down, you're getting towards the end, and I think you're beginning to kind of, I think you, the way you're writing it and what you're trying to get across. But you then put a really good message out that um, you, you see how different your life would be if if she doesn't buy the CD. Mm. You know what I mean? Which she didn't is, buy it, by the way. I gave her it. Oh, so no wonder the band's bluff. I wasn't <laughs> making any money. That's why we never made any money. <laughs> <laughs> but you go into, you know, um, Four words you use, heart, soul, passion, meaning, mm-hmm. which I think everyone's got different ways that they can resonate with them. Um, but you, urge, you, know, you go and see, I urge each and every one of you to discover something in life that awakens you and stirs you, your soul, and pursue it, which I think is great advice. I think it's solid advice. And make it part of your life, but it's also try things. 
you know, um, if you don't think you can, you can. If you're worried about how bad it'll sound, if you go into a band and you, you say, I'll send you the first Teardrex CD. I actually don't have any of them, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> you probably made it in the skip with that guitar. Um, but, you know, do, do it for yourself, you know, do it for anyone. Um, you know, if you do find it hard, you can speak up. And I think now... It's, you can. There's loads of different ways mm-hmm. to to speak to people and open up, and it, it's totally all right. You know, it's totally. Some people might just be in the phase. Someone will always listen. I've always said I'm 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 quite a good talker, but I'm also quite a good listener, mm-hmm. as this podcast has shown. Because I, although I've read the story, something about when someone tells you, it's just so much more. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and then you go into near the end and how the essay ends. And I really like this bit. Um, It's quite strong because you say at the end of the record I played that made me want to stay alive, which is a huge, huge statement. And we haven't touched on this for an hour. No. But I imagine there's been trigger points throughout the whole phase of your life that you've just thought, I'm done. Yeah. To be here... To be now, to write that especially, was it a massive lift? Was it a release? Yeah. Or was it being honest enough to write it down? I don't I don't think I I don't think I told anybody about it. No certainly nobody close to me. Um but yeah, and, and another moment in my life that I'll never forget. And yeah, you're quite right in what you said throughout my whole life. Well, when I was young, as soon as I lost mum, when I was young and naive, the, f- the first thing in my head was, well, when people die, they go to heaven. So if mum's gone to heaven because she's dead, then all I want in life is to see her again. So all I need to do is die and I'll see her again. And that thought invaded me for years and years and years. And I think I was just too young to know how to do anything about it at that point or, or, or potentially too scared to, to attempt to do anything about it. Um, so I didn't um, but I thought about it all the time and uh, I, th- I still thought about it all the time during my, my teen years and my early 20s and this was potentially mid it would have been mid to late 20s um, I moved into a flat with the second flat I'd ever moved into so I moved. Uh, this was me moving out of the first flat that I'd moved into, into the second flat and yeah I, I got into the flat that day I'd be getting mail sent to where I worked at the time because I was in between addresses so I'd, I'd been at work I had literally had two cardboard boxes full of everything I owned in the, in the world all my CDs were at my dad's house and were for years after there's uh, still vinyl records my mum's loved, so let's just not say too much about that. But aside from that, everything that I owned was in two boxes and I'd carried them from work up to this flat that I was moving into with my mate. And it was a bit of a hovel. It wasn't really a... It wasn't a very luxurious pad, put it that way. Um, so, yeah, came in, shut the door, put the boxes down, sat on the... The, the stained, unsheeted mattress that had been generously left in, in the flat by the landlord for me to sleep on no bed, just a mattress and I was just kind of looking around the place going, this, this is it, you know, this is what my life has come to this is all I've got in my life um, and just by chance at work that day, like I say, some mail was I was getting mail delivered to my work because I, 
I didn't have an address at that point. Um, so yeah, a CD that I'd ordered had arrived, so I took it home. A CD by my, from that point on, favourite band of all time, a band who I was lucky enough to play with with 15 minutes. I begged the promoter, who's now good friends of mine, to let us open for them when they played in Glasgow uh, a few years ago. I think that was in 2006. I proposed to Gemma at that gig, incidentally. <laughs> played played the gig with an engagement ring on my pinky for fear of losing it out of my pocket. Well, that's a whole different story. So, yeah, I had the Latterman CD in, in, my, in my hand, got home into the flat. First thing I unpacked, CD player, put it on. I may as well listen to this. But, yeah, I, I was seriously at that point, this is me, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much done. Um, I'd met and was with Gemma and... I was, I'd basically ruined a relationship towards the end of, of Tearjack because I stupidly chose the band thinking we would make it, fucking idiot. Um, but regardless of that, um, I kind of, I kind of in my heart heart knew that the, the relationship wasn't going to last anyway. There was a, a move down south on the cards for, for her and that wasn't something that I was interested in. So it was coming to a natural end. So, But that was in the back of my head. I'd, I'd, I'd recently started seeing Gemma and really really liked her and I was convinced I was going to completely fuck this up as well so all this was just playing in my head and I thought well, this is pretty much as low as, as it's going to get at this point in my life apart from her and and at that point I didn't think I had got to the point where damage was you know irreparable you know she'd get over it it was what kept going through my head and uh but yeah, I thought I may as well listen to this because, you know, it's meant to be good. I'd read st- good stuff about it, banged the CD on, sat down. Old school style, I had to, I had, I'd gone back to buying CDs because um, I only had a CD player. I couldn't afford anything else at that point. So it was actually was a CD at this point. So I put the CD on and was flicking through the book. And yeah, like I say, the, the last song on the album um, gets to its sort of conclusion and... Uh, it's basically, it, I mean, Latterman are a force of positivity, like un- incredible. I've never heard a band before or 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 after that's, that's anything like them. They're just a complete force of, you know, just positive energy. Um, it's just, it just, I don't know, I just, I could, like, it's, like I credit that band with saving my life, you know. I mean, I've 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 gone on record cheesily and quoted before, you know, punk rock saved my life and all the rest of it, and then to a certain extent it did. But that night, like that, they actually did stop me from doing something completely terrible. And yeah, like I say, the the last line of the last song on the album is just it builds to a point, and they just repeat over and over again: the strength is always there. And it was just the, it's like. Well, if you listen to the recording, that they essentially have all of their mates in the room, and everybody takes a shot at, at screaming the line out in their own style, and that's what you get. You know, it's like that strength is always there. The next person, the strength is always there, and just it just drummed it and drummed it and drummed it and drummed it into my head throughout the whole duration of the end of that song. And I just can't. I was lying there in the middle of the room. You know, I was just thinking to myself, "What the fuck am I doing?" You know what I mean? What am I even contemplating here? look what I've come through to get to this point. You know, nothing so far has beaten me. So, like, today of all days, why did I let today beat me? So I just flipped it around and put the record on again and listened to the whole thing again. 
And I think if that had been any other message at the end of that, if they structured that in any other way or dropped that song from that album, I don't want to know. I don't want to contemplate what, where I could end up that night, but it certainly would have involved a lot of harm to myself. So, yeah, I think about that night over and over again and for, for, for music to be able to have that effect still, you know, it just made me, it just made me want to stay alive. It made me want to spread that message. It made me want to write more songs that were like that. And it was just, uh, yeah, like you say, it's, it's hard to put it into words. It's, uh, it's one of them stories that when you hear it, it's almost not unbelievable, but you just think, you know, if someone you know is through that, how do you deal with it? Mm-hmm. So you know who's going through that. I mean, for me, I speak, I would speak to anyone. I would try and help absolutely anyone. And I would hope for me that you, you could talk. Certainly now, I think it's, you would have to. But I know people suffer in silence and they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But it's hard. It's hard it's, to open. It's hard, it's hard to, to, to say, to be honest with people. It's hard to open up to the to your loved ones, the people closest to you, because some people think they'll be disappointed in me. I hate I hate causing people to worry, and that's what yeah. I constantly worry. That's what constantly goes through my head. Is they're just going to worry about me. I know I can handle this. I've got coping mechanisms that have been in place throughout my whole life. I can handle this, and then but yeah, I mean, I mean, everybody wobbles, and yeah. I've had a couple of days where it's like, well, I'm I'm actually not able to cope with this at the moment. How is this going to end? And and there's just been some sort of intervention that's propped up. And I've had to, quite a few moments like that, which is a lot, which are quite spooky, you know, throughout my life, where you know th- something like that's happened just at the right time, and it's been enough to divert my attention or make me take a step back and take a breather before I do what I was going to do. You sum it all up in the essay with that's kind of near the end. And there's a really nice picture of the tattoo that you've got on your leg mm. that says the line. It's got uh, other bits and bobs in it that kind of tells a story, as most of your kind of art does. Your the tattoos you've got all mean something, mm. you know. Yeah. You might have went through a rebellious phase of just getting a tattoo for the sake of it, but yours have all kind of got mm-hmm. a bit of meaning to them. The essay was published in 2016. Yeah. Tell me about the next chapter. <laughs> Since then, well... The most seismic change that's happened in my life since then is is um, the birth of my son, Little River Lachlan Kid, um, and that again changed everything and made me question everything yet again. River was born at twenty six weeks gestation, and I, if you told me that, you know. I, even a year ago, uh, I wouldn't really understand what that implications that meant, but that that's pretty early. <laughs> so that just happened all of a sudden. Um, but Gem and I had been talking and wanting to start a family. We'd, we'd made an agreement years ago to get all this, you know, all the stupid stuff out of our system while we were uh, relatively young and certainly while we were child free. So we did all the stuff we wanted to do, the holidays we wanted to do. We, we've, there's a, there's a, 
a magnificent punk festival in Florida, which we managed to go four times. Um, and it was yeah, some of the most brilliant memories of my life, being able to do that and getting married over in New York and all the rest of it. So we'd done all that, got out of the way. We knew we wanted to start a family. And uh, it, it was a challenge. It took a while. I don't know what was going on, but... I guess it just happens with some couples and we were at the point of potentially you know seeking help and seeing um, if this was even going to be a gore and then we found out that we were pregnant um, it was again one of those spooky things it was um, it was Mother's Day 2018 Mother's Day that we found out so again having both lost our mums and that was the day of all days that we found out in the evening that you know what she, a day I know she just randomly decided oh, I'll just take a test and yeah get the shout to come upstairs she'd done four tests I think at that point but I still had to go and get a clear <laughs> blue from the co-op and blow a tenor on that to, just to make sure well it, nothing says pregnancy like a fifth test yeah exactly I think I might be pregnant I mean, no shit so yeah, that was it, and then we, so yeah, we're gearing up and getting ready for it, and then the wee man decided, no, I'm coming early, and that's all I'm going to say about it. So he uh, he was born on the 9th of August last year, like I say, at 26 weeks, and I had no idea what that entailed um, until I sort of walked into the 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 neonatal unit at Nine Wells, you know, after he'd been taken away from the the labour delivery. We got, we got to see him very quickly. Um, they had to instantly intubate him and put a tube into his lungs to, to keep him breathing. So we quickly saw him after that and there was just enough time to confirm that it was a boy because we didn't know, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't find out. It was like, what, what is it? Before he ran away, like, oh, sorry, it's a boy. Nice one. So, yeah, I didn't really kind of understand what the journey was going to be until we, I walked into the neonatal unit and seen him in the, in the incubator and tubes and wires everywhere. And... <laughs> And the, uh, not a funny part of the story, but um, obviously when something like this happens, you're not five minutes away either. Mm. You know, you've got the journey to get there. No, but luckily I was, able, like Gemma phoned me, it was about four in the afternoon and I was in Aberdeen uh, working and she said, I've got this really bizarre pain in my back and it's moving around to my front. I was like, well, if it doesn't feel normal, go to the hospital. I, I'm miles away, there's nothing I can do. I'm leaving now that you phoned me. I will come straight to the hospital and I'll meet you there. I'll be there about six-ish. Okay, let's do that. So, yeah, we I set off and drove down from Aberdeen. Um, just as I'm getting into Dundee off the Forfoot Road, she phones again. Where are you? I'm in Dundee. I'm just coming on the Kingsway. Like, no bother. Um, they're saying that I'm four centimetres dilated. And I'm just like, hey. I'm sure that happens when you're giving birth. And she's like, yeah, I'm totally freaking out. It's like, they're saying that, you know, he might come early, but probably not today. They can stop it and all the rest of it. It's like, well, just, I'm, I'll be there 10 minutes. Just wait. Like, cool. So I get there. So yeah, that's basically what happened. The boy took us into a side room and had had the chat. Like, this baby looks like he potentially will come early. This is what happens when there's, when you have a baby this early. There will be a period of, you know, care required from the neonatal unit and all the rest of it. And as the guy's talking, um, Gemma says, I'm really sorry, but I am I feel like I need to push here. And he's like, okay, right, let's move you into a, a side room. So we went into a bed and yeah, I mean, that was it. I got there about, I got there about half six at night and 8.53pm he was born. Just oof, straight like that. Just decided he was coming and that was it. Quickest two and a half hours of your life. Insane. 
another bizarre moment that happened in that night. We were, the, the room that they took us into, a side room in Nine Wells in the, the labour suite, um, there was a TV on in the room already when we went in. I don't know why, but it was on the, 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 the big blue screen. It was Magic FM that was on and there was just music playing. Right, okay, fair enough. And we were probably only in the room long enough for maybe eight or nine songs to play for the whole the time we were there, just as, you know, the business things started to happen and maybe started to be born. Stand by me came on over the over the radio, and f- instantly then I just thought this this has got to happen. Like for some reason this is this is happening now, but we're going to be okay. I think the the uh, the phrase "things happen for a reason" gets flung about an awful lot, mm-hmm. but there's two many links for that not to work out Mm -hmm. because given he's born so early the percentage chance is probably not hugely high no it was certainly Uh, against the odds like yeah and that's uh just one of those signs that just says nah you're all right you're gonna be okay yeah and i I couldn't believe it i was already greeting but that was it (laughs) over at that point And um, he's, I'm trying to work weeks into months here, how early he actually was in months. It was about three months. About three months. And you obviously get the chat. For the next three months, obviously, till he's, should be here. Yeah. You know, most challenging times of your kind of day-to-day working life balance? Over... Um, it was over and above the most challenging period of my life, definitely, without question. I think because there was so much, there's just so much you can't control. So much is out of your hands completely. And it's a, it's a horrible position to be in because you've got no idea what you're supposed to do. I've, I had no idea how to help Gemma. I had no idea how to cope with everything else that I had to still try and do um, it, it was just yeah it was just it was just total chaos utter chaos and I I am um, I freaked totally freaked out on the night of the birth and um, I went up to see him in the neonatal unit Gemma had to continue down in the in the ward for a wee while with the doctors but they took me up to go and see him so I knew where he was and all the rest of it and they would later take Gemma up in the middle of the night when she'd had a bit of rest and was recovered. Um, but I went home. I have no idea why. Like, I just went, right, okay, um, I'll see you in the morning. And just, I just went home. And then it wasn't until, a f- like, maybe, like, months later, she's like, I can't, she's like, something came up in conversation. She's like, oh, yeah, just like the night, just like when you left me on the night that I gave birth. I was like, eh? She's like, you, and I was like, oh, and I thought, but I was like, yeah, I did. I just went home. I just, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, every part of me now thinks in my head that, you know, I should have just, whatever it took, just stay there, just sleep in an armchair next to her all night, just be there. But I don't know, for some reason I just thought, no, we've got dogs at home. She'll need jammies. She'll need a toothbrush. I just went into total, like, in a different mode and just, Mm. I'll go and sort all that out. I'll come back. I just went home. I was mad. 
a pal of mine, brain just doesn't work properly for a wee while. A pal of mine, when his uh, his wife was in labour for a stupid amount of time, he said, uh, "I slept on the the chair in the room, and I think all he had to eat was a crunchy or something like that." And I just remember him sitting on a chair once, demonstrating us the different positions he was in, trying oh, to sleep. And spectacular! It was, yeah. it was mm. hilarious. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you said as well to say, I remember chatting to you about it, obviously about a year ago or so. You hadn't actually built the nursery yet, had you? No, no, or I'd, even emptied the room. No. Is that correct? No. Because <laughs> I'd given her the chat the whole time. Ah, we've got ages. This was August. He wasn't due till November. She's like, you've not started that nursery yet. It's like, I know, because we've got three months. And this room was full of shit. Oh, completely. And other stuff, yeah. Completely, yeah. And then yeah, that was that was the running joke, you know. She she gave birth, he was taken away, and she basically just turned around and went, Told you she should have started that fucking nursery. <laughs> <laughs> and like, how can you think about that at this point in time? Yeah. She just had to get that dig in though. Yeah. And true, right enough, you know. I've I, I'm a firm believer and always have been, what is the point in the last minute if you don't use it? <laughs> you've got until then, yeah. and then only after that point if you if you've not done it, then it's too late. But no, no bother. You're hoped for that last minute to slow right down building all that stuff. <laughs> it wasn't great, I'll give you that. Yeah. No. What's kind of the challenges been? Um, not just being a new parent, which I I imagine is hard enough. No. Well this is it. I mean of all the I was just about getting to the point where I was thinking about, okay, I'm about to be a dad. How do we do this? And then I never got a chance to think about it again. Boom, there you go. So of all the ways to imagine beginning parenthood, this didn't even register. Like I didn't even think that like this, this, I didn't, I'd heard of babies being born early before, but I'd always thought it was some sort of medical condition and it had been followed through the whole pregnancy. So they knew like this is coming early, but we know about it because we've caught it early. I didn't even know this could happen. This was just a not, this was just a natural, just, it was a natural birth. It just happened three months early. He just decided he was coming. So, You've got that to wrap your head around first of all, and then yeah, I mean it's just that I mean, it, essentially you you both want to be there all day. You want to be at the the neonatal unit all day by his side to just watch everything. And the reality is that you can't do that well, for us anyway. We couldn't do that um, because there was dogs at home. There was a wee cat at home that we had to see to. But you were at home anyway, you'd left. Oh, again, exactly. <laughs> I had my feet up, no bother. <laughs> I'll pop in on you in a wee while. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, the, the immediate challenges um, beyond the, the emotional side of things and trying to wrap your head around it was just, you know, getting the physical aspects in play of, you know, how does how does home life continue? Um, Gemma didn't want to leave his side, understandably, for a good while, so she stayed in the hospital for a good while. And, yeah, I was I was just on the the home run every day, like nipping home and washing the clothes and making lunches and bringing all that stuff up and sorting the dogs out and promising them I'll not be that late, I'll get you a walk, I'm sorry. But they just go on with it, they're not caring, so... Um, but yeah, it's, it's... It's it's a very, very difficult and very surreal environment to be a parent in. You, all, all you want to do is pick, the, pick your your kid up and give them a cuddle and, and you can't do that you're just sitting looking through the glass and it was hard for for weeks it was hard to even see him because he was just covered in in, in in wires and stickers and probes and bandages and all that sort of stuff it was it was um, it was hard to watch and um, 
yeah, it's just you have to kind of process that you know he he's here, he's he's doing fine. He's got the greatest support around him that you could ask for. They cannot praise the staff throughout the entire world. Um, up in nine miles enough, every single one of them to to a T. He was just absolutely outstanding with us from start to finish. Um, so you've just got to say, look, this is what they do. You know, they do this day in day out, and they've already told us about smaller babies than him. He was two pound, two pound two ounces when he was born. His true birth weight was about uh, one pound six the day after when the fluid left his system. So. No, there was not much of him. You know, he literally could fit in the palm of your hand. What was the first day like taking him home? Yeah, so it was f- it was four months and a day that we spent in the, the neonatal unit. Um, and we'd said at the time he was born August 9th, the due date was November 14th. Somebody had uh, on the side kind of told us, you know, Aim for his due date, you know, for home time around about then, because his his body's still he needs to get to that stage growing, basically. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you think about a baby when they're when they're born at, at term time, forty weeks, they're uh, they're they're pretty much in most cases ready to go home. Hmm. You need they just need to make sure they're feeding and and breathing and all the rest of it, and off you pop. Good luck. So once he, in theory, once he got to that stage, then he he would potentially be allowed to go home. It turned out it was an extra, almost an extra month for us after that, which was fine considering you know what he started with. But it was his his lungs that had, that had kept him there the whole time. His lungs just never got a chance to develop. They don't develop in the womb until the sort of start of the week, kind of thirty kind of period, if memory serves. So they never really got a chance to to. To get to the stage where he could where he could breathe on his own, so he was constantly on oxygen support. And that's what held him in the hospital. But it got to the stage where that was all that was holding him in the hospital was the oxygen support. He was feeding out of bottles, um, he was maintaining his own temperature, and uh, he just needed a little bit of oxygen support. But they they weaned that down, they weaned that down, and they they explained to us over the last month or so, look, we can do this at home. We can set up an oxygen system at home. And we'll wean him off him at home, so that freaked us out to start with. I was like, "Oh my god, how is how is that going to work?" But well, it's not bad enough that you think I have to change a nappy uh, soon. I know, I have to do all this. It's mental. So they went through that with us, and in truth, that's actually turned out to be one of the easiest elements of it. It's literally just a machine that you you, you switch on. It just sounds a lot worse. It does it? at the time. You're just completely freaking out because. There is there is a, obviously a tube connected from the machine and a, and a cannula in his nose the whole time and and you, 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 as he got older the, the the fights with the stickers to hold the oh cannula I was down. I was going to say Total, about, but that's fun he doesn't like that at all so we had all that to contend with on the day home and I mean the, the I mean you could never exp- you could never experience a, a joy like it I don't think in in being able to bring your child home but. Yeah, it's more so for us having the journey that we'd gone through and and and, and the fight that we'd have to ha- had to have to get him to that stage to finally be able to you know bring him home. It was amazing, and we'd always said we'll aim for Christmas. If we get him home for Christmas, we'll be over the moon. And it was yeah, it was the tenth of December we were able to get him home. So the, this the experience for you might have been a bit different um, because again I can't talk on behalf to wasn't the friends of mine that have got kids. Two of my friends. A wee boy, they brought him home 
for the first time. And they, and they said, and I, I said to him ages ago, I said, what was, what was it like? And uh, I think I maybe asked his wife, actually more than him, and said, um, well, he was sleeping in the, uh, the car seat or, or whatever it was. I've not got any technical phrases. And they sat on the couch and he was sleeping in there and they both looked at each other and went, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just yep. that, that pure... This was easy the last couple of hours because they've done everything. Yeah. What the hell do we do now? See, we had a slight advantage in that we'd done it for four months yeah. already. But it was also a, a total disadvantage because you'd done it for four months and you think, ah, we've pretty much done the baby stage already. But no, uh, have you what? Because he's now just actually the age he's meant to be when you bring him home. So the whole thing started again. So it was just... Our first night was a total stereotypical disaster. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. He was screaming the whole night. It was just, it was just, you know, we were freaking. What were we doing wrong? What were we doing wrong? He wasn't like this in the hospital, but obviously it's total changing environment. Mm. You know, total yeah. changing scenery, changing in bed, and all the rest of it. So, but we got through it, and then slowly but surely we we started to get a little bit better at the whole routine. Because he's, he's still on loads of medicines. So that was the hardest part was keep, keeping on top of how often we had to give him medicine. He still takes eleven syringes of medicine throughout the throughout every day, so it's a lot for him mm. to take on. But um, so that was the biggest challenge to start with was just you know I wouldn't say we ever perfected the routine, but you know trying to get the routine down to where it was manageable. And um, you know, luckily enough, I was able to get time off from my work at that point. The work were actually great, really great with me and understanding how difficult this was and the fact that, you know, neither of us had a granny between us to come and help. So we were literally, for, you know, 75%, 80% of the time, we were on our own, you know. We've both got, you know, relatives um, who are very helpful and pop in and help as often as they can, but they have lives as well, you know. They've got jobs to, to keep down and family of their own. So for the most part, we were on our own. So getting that first period of time off to be able to, at least, you know, get over the nerves and uh, build up mostly Gemma's confidence because she was then going to have to take the mantle over when I eventually had to go back to work. So it was a tough, extremely tough time, yeah. From being born uh, last August to now a year down the line, Mm -hmm. what does the future now hold? For for the wee man, I I hope it holds... uh, you know, infinite possibilities. You know, and he's he's had the the toughest start in life that you could possibly have thrown at him, but he's dealt with it like an absolute champ every step of the way, and he's now a hundred percent become my complete inspiration. You know, it's like I feel almost selfish and completely, um, like say going back to what we spoke about earlier, the fact that I even got to a point in my life where I contemplated ending it you know all he has ever wanted from day one is to just be here and he's never given up and and his spirit is you know my new mantra in life I, every time I'm struggling now with anything at all I just take a wee look at him and he just you know he just gets on with it, it doesn't matter what's thrown at him he is pretty much the most amazing human I've ever met and the fact that he's you know our son is just it's ridiculous it's kind of like it's kind of like all the pain that's happened throughout life. It was 
to build our backbone almost, you know, to be able to handle this getting thrown at us because it would have been very, very easy for this to, to... You could have just curled up in a ball and let this break you quite easily. But, you know, having the moments that I'd had throughout my life and the decisions that I'd made um, in the years prior to it, you know, there was no way I was giving up on him. Absolutely not. And I instilled, tried to install as much positivity into every single day that I could and just refused to accept that he wasn't going to make it. I couldn't, I, I don't, I think that would have been too much to take, you know, had it, had the outcome been any different, you know, I needed him to make it, he had to make it. I, I need that kid in my life. And the fact that he's here is, is totally amazing. Yeah, it's an, it's, it's an amazing kind of 12 months as well mm -hmm. because it's 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 that I hate saying it, it's that proverbial roller coaster though isn't it it's Com oh, completely yeah you know because like you say I mean you didn't know what day to day no. what it was going to be like you no know, through his fall it could just be his lungs just I see the day I'm not working no, exactly. I need a bit more help and uh, whatever yeah we had and we had we've had we have had ups and downs huge ups and downs well, while he was in the unit and while he was while he's been at home, you know, we've had to rush up to the hospital a couple of times with him and spend a week, a, week, a couple of times we've had to spend a week back in there to get his strength back up again. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, touch wood, he's at the point now where he, he, he's he's doing fantastically well. He's almost on 11 hours a day off of his oxygen, so that's pretty much the whole mm. time he's awake that he's off of it. And it just makes life so much easier for him as well. He's not got a tube attached to him the whole time so he can play and do what he wants without getting wrapped up in it and it's so much easier taking him out because um, you're not carrying the canister with you everywhere um, the, yeah, the only problem is he loves having it off his face so when he start to, comes to put it back on at bedtime he really doesn't like it now and fights you it's a total shame what he's had to go is this, through Is that just a phase that hopefully over time will yeah, the whole kinda... the oxygen is is a it's a it's a weaning program. So yeah, the hours have been building up and building up. Mm. He's had a couple of setbacks, but essentially it's going to happen. It's going yeah. it's it's going to happen. He's he's he just need, with everything in in his short life so far, he's just needed time to get to the stage that like you know you know normal babies get are, are at by default. So yeah, you kind of you don't really realize you know. I mean, it would break our hearts when we were leaving the hospital and you would see folk walking out with, with baby buggies and, and car seats and, you know, that was it. They maybe just had the baby the day before and they were home already. And we were like, why is this happening to us? You know, why do we have to go through this after everything? But we've we've got here this far and uh, I don't think it'll be too much longer before we wean them off the oxygen completely, hopefully. How's um, family life now with his two... Or his... Uh Animal companions. His furry brothers. Yes. He, he, he's becoming far more curious of them uh, <laughs> as the days go on. Well, as in the dogs on him and vice versa? Uh, no, the <laughs> dogs have always kind of loved them. And Do they just take a wee look and go, oh, he's, he's all right? <laughs> well, I think they were completely confused because one of the dogs, uh, Winston, a little Frenchie that we've got, he would, he would actually lie on Gemma's bump and almost... Like incubate the bump. <laughs> I think he knew there was something in there, okay. and then yeah, it must have been confusing for him because all of a sudden, you know, mum's bump's gone, but then nothing's come home with her. So like, what's happened? And then like four months later, we bring this baby. He's like, ah, oh, there you are. As he kind of almost had, but he they they accepted him instantly. Winston just wants to be on top of him and licking him and kissing him all the time. 
the other dog Hamish that we've got he's an old man now so he'll just kind of like okay you're alright but he doesn't show an awful lot of interest okay. he'll, uh, he'll come over and he'll, he'll say hi to him now and then but he's he's not too bothered and how's River with them? He, like I say, he's getting more and more curious. He likes to touch Winston. He likes yeah. to stroke Winston, but he's not quite got the the um, the barrier between stroking and grabbing yes. quite uh, yeah. down yet. He's, he's he's a bit of a grabber, yeah. and he'll get a roll of fat now and then, and, and they'll not quite like that. So um, there's a wee bit to work on there. But yeah, you show him down gentle, gentle, and he knows he watches you like uh, pat the dog's head, and then he'll try and do the same. So yeah. he's just kind of fascinated by them. I, I wonder. I would love to know what he thinks they are. He's like, what are these things that just got about my house? It's just, uh, it must be pretty confusing. But nah, he's he likes them, he laughs at them, he giggles at them. Yeah, and I suppose it's these, I mean, now you're going through the the, the stages that, normal births, the horrible phrase to use, but yeah, just kind of that general, you know, the first time they stand and mm-hmm. crawl. Yep. and That's all walk. he wants to do at the moment is stand up. And uh, right now he'll still be quite shouty. Yeah. Whereas when the, and, and when the, the world start coming as well, yeah. but, you know, again, they're going to be wee markers for you. This is weird because he's about to be a year old in two days time, amazingly. But in terms of his development, he's still only nine months old. Yes. So it's quite weird. You have to, you've got to take that into account when folk say to you, "How old is he?" I was like, "Well, technically," <laughs> you give them the answer. But yeah, so in terms of his development, he's not at, he's not at the same physical development that a one-year-old baby would be. So we have to always remember that when we look at we, like, the worst thing you can do as a parent is, "Oh, that kid's doing this and ours isn't." But mm. he's completely different. So you've got to just completely get that out of your head. But no, he's. He, He's, he's, um, his doctors are delighted with his development and uh, how he's coming on um, in terms of his physical movements and stuff like that. So, And I'm imagining just be just with everything you guys have, have been through instead of making future plans, it's day to day, week to week and, and just enjoy much it as just, a family at the minute. Yeah, just enjoy the now. You know, we've, like I say, I've gone for so much of my life living in the past and dwelling on things that I, I have absolutely no impact on and cannot change anymore. So I think I've had um, a bit of an epiphany over the last years. Like, right, I can't do that anymore because I have got this, you know, precious little boy here and now who needs me and he needs a good version of me. I don't know if I'll ever get to the very best version of me, but I want to try and get there. And yeah, he's the sole focus of my my writing now. I write a lot about him um, just to get things out of my head because... Again, it's just it's, it's the same it's the same dynamic. I don't know what to do with all these feelings because they're just overwhelming. So I write them down and 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 I write down how I'm feeling about him. And uh, yeah, I hope one day I can we can sit down and and we can have a chat about his story and his start in life and what it, what it did for me. You know, and totally um, reinvigorated me and gave me the, I think the purpose that I've needed for a long time to get on with things and stop dwelling on, on what's held me back for so long, you know. The thing is, you, you you dwell on these things. They're massive life changing events, you know, and people go into dark places sometimes. It's always how you, you come out. I think we've all been, I've certainly been through it over my lifetime. You know, I'd, I, I've never really spoke about it. I've never had a need to speak about it. I've written about it quite a lot. Um, but you and, and Gemma's mum, they're always going to be looking down. They're always going to be there. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and that that now sole purpose for you, you've, you know, the the song coming on, yeah, you know, writing down your feelings, the song coming on, and then Mother's Day of all days, yeah, you're yeah. made spend another ten quid just <laughs> to make sure it's right, and then the song playing despite everything that happens with it. And the other significant day that I've always um, struggled with is the day Mum died which was August 14th, 1990. And it, it used to creep around on the calendar and that's when I would spiral into, you know, self-destructive behaviour all the time and, you know, it would lead me into lead me into bad places in the run-up to that and certainly on the day. It just would be wise to just not be around me and, and, and I hated that, that, that that's what it had become, but it did, that's what it became. But yeah, that's that's the other significant thing that, that happened the, the, the very first day that I was actually able to hold River last year when he was born ended up being the 14th of August, which was, you know, mum's anniversary. So all, all of a sudden, out of all the days in the year that that could have possibly happened, for some reason it happened on that day and, and August 14th, all of a sudden just completely changed for me. And it, filled, it was filled with, the you know, the, the most joy I've ever felt pretty much. I'm not saying it'll ever be significant, but this goes out on that date. Fourteenth <laughs> August, yeah. For the way life works. Sometimes that's just the way it goes, eh? Again, I hope it's just something that you can um you can take from it. And just chalk up to her working her magic somewhere. Well that's it. You know, it's went from a written form to verbally with a wee bit in it, a lot of extras. You know, and it, but getting the story out that you've th- you've maybe had built up for that long. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's easier. I hope it helps. I hope um, that's the one thing that I have found like over the years is that you know the thing that I avoided for the longest was talking about it. And any time I tried to talk about it, even the pals, they're like, "Oh, I'll, I'll talk to us about it." You know how you like what goes, what's going on with you. I couldn't. I would, every time I mentioned like any part of the story about mum, it was just completely breakdown, and I couldn't speak about it. And the only way that I got over that was by chatting to you know a therapist and and speaking to them. Yeah, I let it all go the first few sessions because they wanted to know the story. But after that, I was able to talk about the events. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not breaking down when I'm speaking about this anymore. And then I was able to speak to more people about it and it's started to become a bit more normal. And yeah, it would never would have got there without, or certainly felt like at the time, forcing myself to speak about it, you know. But that's that's the one thing that I would take from this is, you know, anybody that's that does have anything, you know, eating up and festering away, then whatever way that you can get it off your chest, just get it down and get it out there. And even if, like say, if you, I always found it easier to write it down. And, and even if that's what you need to do, write it down and hand it to somebody. At least you've, you know, you've shared it and they can take in exactly what, what you've said. And then you can start a conversation at that point, knowing that you've both got the same information and you don't have to regurgitate what's the toughest part for you to speak about because, you know, you've done it on paper. Yeah, I mean, the, we mentioned it right, the, kind of near the start, the stigma's always around of, you know, the... Especially in guys, it's something that mm-hmm. maybe doesn't get said, or but on the outside, there doesn't look like there's ever a problem, and it's it's a stigma that goes around 
for so long. We all know someone. Mm-hmm. We might not know about it, but we'll all know someone. And sometimes hearing people talking about it, it could be this. It could be something totally different. It could be going to loads of the groups that are out there, loads of the help that's there, all the charities that are there. They weren't around even 10 years ago for you, you know, and, and they're all around now and it should be easier, but the hardest thing is someone's just opening your mouth. Yeah, it certainly is, 100%. You've done it written and you've come on here and you spoke about it. Um, and again, with these wee bits of time and dates and when it falls, fate's a, a huge thing. And I think it's one of these wee moments that's just maybe uh, led us again. But it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you for a couple of hours and hearing the uh, hearing the story. And uh, for everything you've shared, it's been an absolute delight. Um, there's loads of other stuff in the essay we could have mentioned. Um Anything you can take from it, I think, it, 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 even just telling it, I think, on what can be a bigger audience. It's, it's a massive thing, you know, to do it. And for all these wee bits, when you speak to people, this is a, a big format to open up. And it's uh, I can't thank you enough for, for being as open with it, you know, for an essay that's out there mm-hmm. that people can find. Yep. It's not hard to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then coming on and, and doing it. And uh, I wish you guys all the best. I know soon when uh, we'll get a wee rant from you online on Instagram or whatever when he's being the pain no, I, in the proverbial arse I cannot wait for that day <laughs> because I think you'll get away with a wee bit of blue murder at the minute oh he's going to get away with so much I think <laughs> I think he knows it now he's starting to realise <laughs> well especially when you're trying to just help him at night and he's already going I don't think so not yeah. tonight no exactly not tonight um, just before we finish um for, for the the family, uh, are you done? Or uh... <laughs> that's a question that keeps popping up. Oh, I just meant dogs. I don't mean that. Oh, I, I, definitely, hundred <laughs> percent. No more pain in the arse. Yeah. Uh, no, I I think, like you say, anybody that goes through the the, the start to parenthood that we went through, you're going to need a bit of time to get over that. So I, I don't. I certainly won't be. Uh, making any decisions anytime soon let's just get over this a part of me thinks we've used all the luck up that we're ever going to have um, and I'm worried about you know what might happen next but then there's also you know the the boring statistical factual medical side of things that, that actually could happen again yeah. and I don't think either of us could go through that again so we'll uh, we'll we'll, um, we'll just see how the next wee while pans <laughs> out and how life as a three piece develops <laughs> yeah, you've got a busy house already. It's quite mad. It is quite mad. <laughs> but it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for uh, thanks for giving up your time and, and telling us your story. No, thank you for giving me the platform. It's uh, it's always good to uh, let go a little bit. And like like you said earlier, if it helps somebody else get to that place, then job done as far as I'm concerned. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about it and leave a review or a rating. If you didn't, then let's never speak of it again. These are the days.